Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hi, everyone. This is Kara Swisher, and today we've got a bonus episode for you. It's my conversation with Bob Iger, aka Bob One, from this year's Code Conference. I spoke with Bob about the winners and losers in the streaming wars, the future of movies, and the time he almost bought Twitter, and what he's up to in retirement. Enjoy. So talk to me, start with, one of the things I remember when we talked about 20 years ago, you were some of the very early All Things Ds, um, very few media executives understood what was happening digitally at all. Um, and you were not resistant to it. And one of the things I think you said on stage, if I recall correctly, was if someone's going to eat our lunch, it might as well be us. I said that that long ago? Yeah, that long ago. You, very smart, very prescient. prescient. Yeah. You've gotten a lot of things wrong too. But, um, <laughs> but what... Talk, talk to me about that at back then, what, how you looked at it. Because uh, Eisner had tried a number of things, most of which didn't work. What did, how did you look at it? That was in 2005, I think, when we, we talked. And I had just become CEO of Disney. And we were already feeling the disruptive effects of digital technology. Web consumption, sort of the era of Web 1.0, was actually coming into its own. And web consumption, uh, spending on the web, advertising on the web was all growing. And it was clear that it was starting to have, albeit small at the time, but starting to have a tangible impact on traditional media businesses, how people were spending their money, how people were spending their time. And so I felt then that it would be foolish to try to stand in the way of technological progress. No one's ever done that successfully. Um, and the best thing we possibly could do, we could do, would be initially really to prepare for its impact as opposed to, to create, uh, to, to hasten the change or uh, to participate in, uh, in a, well, not participate, but to essentially um, create it ourselves, I guess is the way to put it. So then I, I basically, so the bet that was made, there was a big, there was a big debate at that time in media about, uh, distribution versus technology versus content, mm -hmm. and it became pretty clear that distribution was going to be extraordinarily disrupted by technology. And if you made great content, then you could ride a wave of great new distribution, great new technology, and disruption in a very successful way. So the first thing really was about um, understanding the role, understanding the role, focusing on putting most of our capital in the direction of making great branded content. And then at the same time, starting to experiment by putting content on new platforms. Right. And the first thing that we did, which I guess is relevant to your conversation later, is Steve Jobs and I began a conversation about putting television product on the quaint little video iPod, mm -hmm. which was at that point. How did that start? Did he call you? What was the? No, I had called him um, because I was, a heavy user of then um, iTunes, big, a big music fan. 
loved what iTunes had done for me in terms of my music consumption, not just mobility, but, but curation, choice, all those things. And I suggested to him that he think about doing that with television shows. Like, why not create a place that went back in time in the history of television where someone could go and find every episode of every television show um, ever made? I was thinking then about the web. I wasn't thinking about mobile device. He said, that's not a crazy idea. Let me come down and talk to you. And he came down, showed me a prototype of the video iPod. Seems so quaint at this point. Um, and said, if, if we bring this out, of course, he was planning to bring it out. Would you put your television shows on it? I said, hell yes. And we did a deal in five days to put Lost, Grey's Anatomy, and Desperate Housewives the big shows, yeah. on that platform, which was considered at the time um, highly disruptive to our traditional media distribution. Through a network. Namely the network, and then there were some ancillary, ancillary or alternative forms right, of distribution. It was DVD, DVDs, right. mostly then for TV shows. Right. Um, and I guess many people in the industry thought I was a bit of a pariah for being willing to, one, partner with a technology company that was disrupting us, and two, do something that they felt would be almost impossible to justify with the traditional partners. So fast forward, you, you then made a lot of investments in tech, some of which worked, some of which didn't. How did you decide what to invest in? Because I'm, I'm trying to think of all the, so many Disney things that were attempted. Just like in News Corp, but many of the we others. Did, we, we, made, we made a lot of small investments. You the did. biggest investment that we made was with a company called Maker Studios, yep. which, was a, which was a miss. Yeah. Um, that was, when thinking back on it, didn't really fit that well into our strategy. Uh, the biggest investments, of course, that we made were in IP, which dwarfed, in terms of the size of the investment, um, the investments that we'd made in technology. So it was tiny. There were some video game um, forays, namely uh, video game developers. It wasn't that we didn't invest that much, though. Did you think you didn't have the power? Were you worried about the growing power of people like Steve Jobs and Apple and and others? Much of Hollywood was. I my point of view on all of that at that point on technology was kind of if you can't beat them and we can't join them, uh, don't view technology as as basically challenge or as the foe, view them as potential partner and as an opportunity. In other words, position yourselves well to take advantage of their investment in their technology and their distribution infrastructure. Position yourself as best possible to play in that world as opposed to getting just blown away, you know, by right, them. right, by them, because they did control the pipes, essentially, right? Or, or well, the, cable and satellite were still very, very much um, uh, dominant at that point, much less so today, of course. Um, but it was clear to me that eventually they would be dominant. That it would be over the top. So one thing you said to, I think it was Reed Hastings, I envisioned a world where technology would be so disruptive that it would allow for the explosion, really, of production. Can you talk about that? Sure, I think you see that now. If you look back at the history of called shelf space, you can go all the way back, of course, when it was just movie theaters and radio. I'm not going back before then. Um, but then as television uh, came into being in the 40s and 50s into the 60s, the amount of shelf space was very limited. There were just a few channels. So there was just so many places that you could go and so much time in a given schedule because it was all linear and based on time limited by time, there was just so much time that creativity could occupy. And then you look at what's happened today where there's almost infinite shelf space. Right. So what infinite shelf space 
And that means basically infinite distribution, too, and infinite consumption. Mm -hmm. Then what that gave birth to was just a tremendous explosion in investment in things that are being made, creativity. There's a lot of investment. We talk about it a lot on Pivot, like possibly too much. So talk about, this is the economics of streaming that you really pushed into. You pushed Disney in very early, and you know, y'all let Netflix have a lot of laps around the block as they were doing what they were doing. Um, you were not one to disdain them. I think Jeff Bukas did, called them Albanian army or something else. Um, how, did, wh how did you get to that point? And how, I I'd love to know what you think of what's going on now, because now there's real competitors. Um, there's a lot of money being put to it. There's worries about pricing, whether it should be advertising-driven, subscription-driven. Talk a little bit about that evolution when you were starting to think about it and now. Well, first of all, we were the, we were the, at Disney, we were the first studio to license movies to Netflix. Yes, you did. So they stepped up, paid more money than the traditional, it was called pay window, pay television providers paid to license the films that Disney made at the time. And I thought that was worthwhile for us because one, it was generating more revenue, and two, it would give us a look into a different form of distribution. Right, and how this consumed. And we didn't get that much of a look because there was very little data that was shared, but it was very interesting to see as Netflix grew and consumption of our movies on their platform grew, what might be possible. Then, of course, as they started to use their increased distribution and revenue to make original content to compete with our original content, it became pretty clear that we had been selling nuclear weapons technology to a third world country of sorts, a developing yeah. country. Yeah. They are now using it against us. Mm -hmm. And I felt, I studied streaming very carefully, felt that for a variety of reasons, it was the future. For a couple of, to name a few, I thought linear television consumption would eventually end. That it was not that user-friendly, first of all. Second, that because they had so much more shelf space, they could create a lot more uh, opportunity for people to watch things, a lot more volume, a lot more diversity of programming, really. Um, I also thought it was far more user-friendly in many ways. First of all, the user interface versus, by the way, a cable or satellite platform, plus the mobility part of it. You could watch it on app-based entertainment, so you could watch it on a device, or you could watch it on a set, basically, um, on your wall. Uh, you could also time shift in a much easier fashion. So user friendliness, more shelf space. I thought a much more compelling way to monetize uh, creative investment in creativity than before. And so the next step, having seen what Netflix was now doing, was to do it ourselves. And the only thing that took time, well, first of all, there is indeed a real innovator's dilemma that a company in traditional, any traditional or embedded business is pretty much designed to protect their incumbency. That's correct. Everything right. about it. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort. And I would argue a mandate, an edict uh, by an entity to um, force change and essentially to go against the grain you know, within of your own. Of what's making your with, money, right? Because you have company. shareholder pressure and things like but that. But it became clear to me that there was an inevitability to having to do that. We would be better off doing it sooner rather than later. Frankly, I was tired of getting asked questions on earnings calls about the future of cable and satellite and de decrease in 
in subscriptions primarily to ESPN. It was just time to, to make the pivot. You had been in Hulu, though. You had been in other things. You had tried. We had made a modest investment in Hulu uh, as one of the network own, uh, owners that was uh, providing programming to them. But it was, I think we owned maybe at that point 30%. Right. It was one it of was those was pretty things. modest. Yeah. And, and so this was, is a time, this to me... Was owning it, yourself. It was time to go, really go for it, which meant significant investment, significant commitment, a true um, open-mindedness to disrupting almost everything that we and did. And you have significant IP, which has put you ahead, which Netflix did not have. Or... Well, yes, and interestingly enough, I, I envisioned way back a world where technology was going to, as we talked about, was going to expand basically the purview of the storyteller, mm -hmm. and that quality branded IP would basically stand the test of time and would, would thrive even Wherever. in a disrupted world. Mm -hmm. So when we had Disney, obviously, and ESPN, but then we bought Pixar and improved Disney animation and bought Marvel and bought Lucasfilm Star Wars. And by the time we started to contemplate a pivot to streaming, it was pretty clear that we had a hand in terms of the content, the IP that we controlled that was stronger than any company that was in the business, whether it was the technology companies that were going into it, like Amazon and Apple, whether it was Netflix, whether it was any of the incumbent media companies that had they tried, they would not have had those brands, the brands and that do. IP that we had. We'll be back in a moment with more from Bob Iger from Code. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world, believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. We're back. Now, more from Code. How do you assess the tech companies' efforts? Apple, Amazon, um, Google's not really in it very much, although they talk about it every now and again. And Netflix, I guess, would be, I consider them a tech company, not a media company. But how do you assess their efforts so far? And then I'd love to get a sense of, What's going to happen now? Because it feels as if there's too many subscriptions. It's hard to choose. Now, I have them all. I pay for them all right now. I'm, I, I can afford it. But how does that stay a business? And obviously, Netscape's moving to advertising. Yeah. Um, and well, first of all, I assess what they've done quite positively. Mm -hmm. 
I'm actually, in some cases, surprised. Um, not by Netflix success. I've kind of watched that uh, incrementally improve. <clears throat> I was on the board of Apple when they decided to go into the streaming business of television and movies. Um, I thought it would take them a long time. They've done better than I expected they would do because it was a business that they weren't in at all. Uh, maybe that says a lot, too, about the opportunity that if you invest wisely, bring the right people in. Yeah, or maybe it's just not so hard, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty hard. Okay, all right. Uh, okay. I'll take your word for it. Oh, you because did, it's just so unpredictable, well. and there's so yeah. much that you don't control, and yeah. you have to make a lot of tough choices without using any data mm -hmm. that tells you what the right answer is beforehand. Right, right, right. The data can't tell you what kind of what movie to make. If you right. try, by the way, good, right. good luck. But yes, I know. So how, how I feel about Thanks it... Thanks on a plane, as I recall. <laughs> yes. As I look at it today... I'm pretty certain that, first of all, linear TV that we talked about, cable and satellite, is marching in, in a constant direction toward a great precipice, mm -hmm. and it's going to be pushed off. Mm -hmm. A lot of people subscribe to cable and satellite television today because of certain programming, but also because of habit and complacency. And I think as you see a generational shift that becomes more profound, away from baby boomers with new generations coming in, they don't want to watch linear television. So I can't tell you when, but it goes away. They just away. want the internet. They just it want goes the away. It goes, app, they want app-based television. They want to watch programming. Yeah. It doesn't last. Right. And, the, and the user interface just won't stand the test of time. So then you look at the streaming business. I don't think all streamers are created equal. I do not believe all streamers that are in it today will survive. There are going to be haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. Well, now that you're not working, can you name some names? I, you know, I can tell you that I believe that, that, well, Netflix is going to continue to thrive. They could have some issues now, but you know, they're yeah, not going souring, away. Clearly, I'm a big believer in Disney. They've got the IP. They've already proven they can be successful in that business. Um, obviously, Apple and Amazon, they're you know, not primary businesses for them, and they're measured probably by different standards in terms of the bottom line, and they serve other purposes in those companies. But they're not going to stand pat. They're going to continue to grow, and they'll grow well. They'll, they've got deep pockets. They've got great access to consumers. They have strong technology platforms. They've proven they know how to do it, so they stay. I, I'm not going to make any predictions about the others, but I think they've got some tough hands. And it takes a lot of capital to be in that business. So I don't think they'll, they'll all make it. You brought up advertising. I believe that consumers will tolerate... Um, commercial interruption on streaming platforms uh, in exchange for cheaper subscription fees. So whether you can afford it or not, um, you may make a decision that you want four streamer, streaming subscriptions, but you may want to pay less for each one and you'll take ads. Mm -hmm. You may decide one, you don't want ads because you watch that the most, but the others, you might as well take ads. So advertising will thrive in a streaming world. What about bundling? Bundling of streaming platforms? Or just, like, look at what David Zaslav's attempting to do. Make a turducken over there at Warner Media. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Oh, um, 
I don't know. Bundling. A discount turducken, but go ahead. I, I, I think what, what Netflix is going to do with advertising, what Disney has announced they're going to do, those are smart moves. Uh-huh. Because it's going to give consumers choice. You can have it for so less. what about movies then? Because movies, you're talking about television, and there's been a, a, as you, an explosion of programming. There's a lot that's not good, but there was a lot of not good programming before. Oh, but there's a lot that is really good. Yes, there's a lot that is really good, which is great. And there's a lot of choice, and that's really what's good about it. What about movies? Because you have recently said, I think, that you thought that... Um, that, that movies release is going to be changed dramatically the same way, that, that you didn't think people were going to stay and go to movies except that they were large tent poles like a Marvel Yeah, movie. I think the wound that the movie-going movie business has suffered, which began really with uh, COVID or maybe was exacerbated or hastened by COVID, it results in a permanent scar. So I, I don't think movies ever return in terms of movie-going to the level that they were at pre-pandemic. And I think the reason for that is, more than anything else, it's competition, it's choice. It's the fact that even though you say a lot that's being made on the streaming platforms isn't very good, no, a lot of I'd is. argue a lot is, and it's movie-quality television. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a movie of a given series or story every week. Mm-hmm. And I think consumers have learned, as they got more comfortable with the user interface and the subscription and uh, basically app-based television, uh, they've learned to find it, find shows that they like. They've learned to enjoy them. They love the flexibility it gives them from a time perspective. And it, re- it replaces movie going. It doesn't mean movie going goes away. I'm a big believer in movies. I love big movies. Mm-hmm. I like going to theaters and watching with basically a you know, communal experience with a lot of other people going out of the house. That won't go away, but it doesn't come back to where it was. It doesn't come back. I think it's I don't. I think it'll be very big tentpole movies. But yes, but it's not a dead business. No, it's a small business. Smaller. Broadway is great. Small. It's small. If you really actually look at the numbers, it's not very big compared to a lot of things. When you think about that, can will it have the same cultural impact? Then I mean, it's interesting because I think of a movie negative cultural impact, positive or negative cultural. Because I, I have to say, when I think of a movie like Encanto. I didn't, my kid has watched it 193 times at this point. Thank you so much. But, um, and then now Frozen is here to stay and never will leave our home ever. Um, but it does have an impact on her. But can you have that big cultural impact? I guess all, all the kids know the songs, the same thing. I, I think the movie industry used to argue that you could not create cultural impact without having everybody go to a movie theater on the right. same weekend in every country in the world, and that you couldn't create franchises. I don't agree anymore. Mm-hmm. I probably made that argument at some point. You did. It was an old world argument, mm-hmm. and it, was a, it basically wasn't rooted in reality. I think you're finding now, I mean, I know plenty of people who watch the Game of Thrones prequel mm-hmm. on the same weekend that it came out and talked about it the next day. Mm-hmm. And Mandalorian, Disney had that with the Mandalorian when it put it that put that on. The Beatles get back, Hamilton on on Disney Plus. We can name a lot of different things. Right. How does that change the talent relations? You, I suspect you spent more than your share of time talent petting. I did. Essentially, um, are you glad that's over? Or? I don't miss my job. Okay, all right, okay. Um, uh, that has nothing to do with talent. I, I, I miss some people that I work with, but I don't miss, I don't miss my job. That, wasn't, I was, that never what, created much anxiety for me. The economics of it, not the petting. Well, I think, I think it's interesting because the time we're going through right now in the media and entertainment space is the age of great anxiety. Everybody's yes. anxious. 
people who are running these big companies are anxious. Even streaming companies are anxious. Investors are anxious. Advertisers are anxious. The creative community is anxious. Mm -hmm. Agents are anxious. Everybody's anxious. They're anxious because this is an era of great transformation. And there are a lot, still a lot of unknowns. If you are a creator, I happen to believe that the world ahead, the world that we've really entered into is a great world because it's going to create more opportunity. Mm -hmm. The problem is in this transformation from the traditional to the non or to the new media, you have a completely different manner of, of measuring success. Mm -hmm. So if you're a creator, it used to be about what's my box office and what are my TV ratings? Right. Gone, both gone. Mm -hmm. So I think, one, there's anxiety because... They can't count. It's harder to count, and that ties to compensation, mm -hmm. too. How am I rewarded? In a lot of cases, um, creators are rewarded in a good way. They're bought out. In other words, there's no second, there's no ancillary rights. Their rights are basically they're bought in perpetuity. So once they sell it, then what's, ne what's next? Do I root for it to continue to get great? I may not get paid against that. I think they want it to be great and consumed by a lot of people, but it's an interesting time in that regard. And I think what also you're seeing is a lot of people who are running these businesses are anxious and transferring that anxiety to the creative community. Right. And you have a creative community that is typically anxious to begin with because, you know, they're putting their soul, their creative soul on the line constantly and there's so much that can't be predicted. So when, when that happens, who do you think wins in that? game. Is it creators? We're going to definitely. have Issa Rae on next, who is, makes her own stuff. Yeah. But. Oh, definitely. I think creators win. Again, I think we've got to figure out how creators get compensated fairly in, a, in basically a new way of measuring what success is. Do you have any ideas on this? I've had ideas along the way, but none that I... You don't care now, right? I don't care how they get paid. No, I don't care that much anymore. <laughs> I, I, I care a little. I optioned a book, actually. With yes. My... So I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> Two things I want to ask you about, because we're going to get to some questions in a minute. But metaverse. Do you see movies in the metaverse? Do you see that happening? Well, last time we talked, you were... Uh... Well, I think the metaverse has not really been fully defined yet. Everybody's no. got its own definition. Everybody talks about now in terms of web, using Web 3.0. I think there's, that there's a lot ahead in terms of technology's Im impact on, on people's experiences and lives that's pretty, that could be pretty exciting. We don't really... I don't you think, also were worried about some of the things you could do to brand to IP in those environments. Well, it depends on what kind, of, what kind of experiences you create. There's a requirement to monitor what people are doing right now on social media. And yeah, there's obviously a when It's you're, working so well. Well, yes, that's true too. But if you think if you immerse kids, for instance, in a metaverse, in an immersive world, I think the monitoring issues become bigger. First of all, the, the uh, possibilities in terms of bad behavior grow. And the need to protect gets greater, and that's complicated. You weren't uh, making a lot of investments when you were running Disney and Metaverse, right? Or uh, not to my none, none that I recall. NFTs or anything like that. There was when I was still at Disney, they were kicking tires and doing some small deals with NFTs. Mm -hmm. So. I want to talk. Finish up talking a little bit about management, and you were going to make some predictions for me. Is that right? Well, I already said I thought not all streamers would would, would last. Linear viewing and cable and satellite would eventually go away. Advertising would thrive. Creative community will be in good shape eventually. Yeah, eventually. What other predictions do you want? I, I, lots of them. So what do you, what do you do it's all day? It's going to be hot in Los Angeles. I asked Steve Jobs this. What do you do all day now, Bob? What do you do? How's retirement? Treatment? Retirement is great. I have, a, I have a vastly different life than I had before. Uh, 
I think, first of all, I don't have the responsibility and I don't have the mm -hmm. vast quantities of homework that I had before. Mm -hmm. So there's much more kind of air in my mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm learning, have been, in fact, about have, how to be an entrepreneur mm -hmm. by uh, mentoring and advising and investing in startup companies and entrepreneurs. You have a strange group here. What is your criteria? Perfect day, genius, which is a metaverse thing. What You could be on any board in the world. I suspect they would love I've been offered life. a lot of different boards. Yeah. Uh, I've said no to any large um, company board. Um, I've done that before. I enjoyed it then. I'm much more engaged now in new companies. So Genies is one. They're basically creating tools for people to create avatars for use, by the way, in traditional social media platforms, but also in some form of web 3.0 environment. Perfect Day manufactures whey protein without using cows. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm associated with Canva, which mm -hmm. is online yes, creative design, design tools. Mm -hmm. uh, a company that's called Relativity Space that's manufacturing uh, rockets with 3D printers. Um, what, this has, I'm missing a few. What, what, um, is the, what, is the what is the guiding principles here? Guiding principle is use of technology to, to, to disrupt current business or to have a positive impact on the world. Another one is a medical device company that's marrying AR with surgery, right. giving surgeons tools, using basically high-quality computer imaging, uh, image rendering, real-time for surgeons to use to basically uh, have much greater vision, and they're using some Pixar technology to do that. So I, I'm, I'm drawn to companies that are using technology to change the world, using technology to disrupt. And I love, of course, as I always have, the merger of or the intersection of technology and creativity. So you, Canva is a great example of that. You don't want another big media job. What if, say, Comcast no, no, bought Discovery no, and said, no, Bob, no. come back? I'm, first of all, I'm 71 years old. That's all right. You look good. I worked at ABC. <laughs> I worked 70 at is the new 50. That's true. Um, maybe. Some days. No big media company, tech no, company. No, I worked, I worked for a big media company for almost 50 years. Yeah. I started when I was 23. Yeah. No. I don't know why I'm still I'm having working. a good time. I'm, I'm writing another book. Yeah. I'm having yeah, time, good time to read and sail more. Yep. Um, get to know my grandchildren a little bit better. And lear I'm learning a huge amount from people. So one of the things you're doing in this book is how to manage. I want you to finish up and then we'll get to questions from the audience is, what do you think, um, it says, drawing on decades of experience, managing crisis and adapting to disruption, Iger shares insights on how leaders across the country, around the world, blah, blah, blah. What is this book about? <laughs> Leadership. Carrie, you really know how to sell it. I know. <laughs> I'll have to turn to you when the book comes out. <laughs> blah, blah. Oh, you are. You're coming on my advice. podcast. Just FYI. I was... Um, We're going to do a whole thing about leadership, you and me. Okay. I was fascinated watching the world during COVID. Mm-hmm at how leaders were managing during this incredible crisis. Mm -hmm. And I realized that over history and things that I had read about and was fascinated with, there are many times in the world where leaders were called upon in extraordinary times to manage. World War II, Churchill and the Blitz, I and mean, you can name tons of different examples of it. And so I started studying it more and trying to decide or trying to determine what the attributes, what attributes were needed to successfully manage through a crisis. As I looked at it, I realized that because of some of the 
uh, disruption that I've seen that we've talked about. I thought I could combine it with managing during a crisis, but also managing during a period of great uncertainty and transformation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working with a team, researching um, as much as we can, not just what had been my experience through the pandemic, but also during tough times, but the experience of others, current CEOs, government officials, you name it, and what the commonality was, if there was commonality in terms of those that did it well and those that didn't. So what is the best leadership advice in that regard so far? And the worst? Well, it seems to me that I'm, st I mean, I'm, I don't know, I wouldn't even say I'm halfway through this, but I'm pretty, I'm well into it. It's very, very clear that it takes a lot of empathy and a lot of courage. You have to put yourself in everybody else's shoes and really know what they're feeling. And it takes incredible courage to do a lot of things, including, which is another attribute you need, is you have to make decisions at a much faster pace than ever before. And you have to have the courage to do that. You don't have the time to collect as much knowledge. You don't have to, the time to be as deliberate. You have to be really quick and really confident that you're making decisions that are right. Um, among um, the things that I've, uh, I've learned. You have to very carefully balance optimism with realism, making sure that you don't in any way kill people's hope in, or douse it at all, but also making sure you're preparing people for the worst. So for instance, you don't say about a pandemic, it's just going to blow over. You have to say, this is real, this is dangerous, this is going to cost lives. Here are the things you must do as a society to protect yourself and others whether it's wear masks, vaccines, et cetera. We're going to get through this. We've got the, you know, the right culture, the right country, <clears throat> you name it, the right science, the right technology. That sounds like something a president would say in the United States. I know you thought about running. I've asked everybody else if they're running for office. Would you ever run for office? <laughs> uh, I'm not planning to run for office. That, is that a no? That's just what I said. I'm not okay, planning to run right, for office. Okay, all right, fine. I think you are. Um, so last thing... Um, <laughs> You should. I, I don't usually, why? Why? I don't usually do not tell another white guy, oh, please run for office. We don't have enough of you. But I think you'd be an excellent, because I think you'd be an excellent politician, because I don't think you give a fuck, um, which I like. I like, that's one of the things I like about you. So last thing. Because I don't get drawn into your no, speculation. No, you totally here. get drawn in. You get completely drawn in. Um, one of the things, this is interesting from someone I think is really smart. I started listening less and maybe with a little less tolerance of other people's opinions, maybe getting a little bit more overconfident in my own. That was said by Bob Iger. Yeah. As, I, um, as my tenure at Disney um, grew or, or, or whatever, <laughs> wore on, um, I got more confident in my own opinions and judgments and realized that in doing so, I was becoming more dismissive of others. Um, either because I didn't have the time or because, again, I was so confident in my own I knew instincts. That. I know that, right? Yeah, and that's a bad place to be. And I don't think I ever got to the point where I thought it was dangerous, but I got to the point where I felt it. And I articulated to others I was working with. And it was one of the reasons why I decided to step down when I did. I, I, I did first of all, I wanted to leave on my own terms, didn't want to overstay my welcome, did not want to get to the point where arrogance set in and I was no longer doing the things that had made me successful at the beginning. All right, we'll end on that. And I don't have to go to Disney World anymore, right? Well, you, you should go to Disney World. It's a great place to go. No, it isn't. It's terrible. <laughs> one time... Well, you he, wait one, a minute. One time... You always no. bitched to me about no. going, and every time you went, you came back to me and said, that was a great place. No, I say it wasn't as awful as I thought it would be. That's different. <laughs>
This guy, one time, this is so true, I'm yeah. putting it in my That's book. That's a glass half he, empty. He made me go on a cruise before he'd agree, to, Disney cruise, before he'd make, where I'd agree to come and speak. You said you have to go on a Disney cruise first. You don't remember this, but it was very... I remember cool. talking to you about it. it. I don't remember... It was an extraordinarily cruel thing to do. The soft serve was excellent. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, my name's Alyssa Bushnell, and I have to say I judged COVID as being real when you shut down Disneyland Shanghai. Like, that's when I knew it was real. So, but my question is, um, how important is narrative in location-based entertainment for you? And second question is, I'd like, I'm curious as to your thoughts and perspective about um, Netflix ex expanding into LBE with regards to their Stranger Things and their Bridgerton experiences. Sorry, the first question, how important is narrative in... Location-based entertainment, like at Disneyland. It's extremely important. Very, I mean, Walt Disney created Disneyland as a place to tell stories in, uh, to give people the sense that they had left their daily frets and their daily life behind and basically had entered a world to see fantasy, adventure, et cetera, and so on. Uh, really important. And since he created Disneyland in the mid-50s, uh, Disney Imagineering has put infused stories into almost everything they've done in theme parks around the world, whether it's a hotel, a restaurant, a parade, a theme park attraction. Extremely important. I think it's one of the things that differentiates Disney's theme park experience from all others. It's the immersive world that's created and the stories that people experience. The second part, Netflix and they're, they're entering into... Um, Franchises. Like, in real life experiences with the Stranger Things oh, experience and the Bridgerton experience. I don't, I don't have much of an opinion. I don't have an opinion on that. I'm Just, with you, am I? I don't know. I don't know. It seems kind of small, but worth experimenting. <laughs> I'd, I'd love, thank you. I'd love to see you in a Bridgerton outfit. You'd look good. Okay, yeah. Uh, by the way, some of these businesses, what often happens at businesses is you, you run big businesses that do really well and everybody decides to freelance yeah. and they create a lot of small stuff and it never comes close to the big stuff, but you're spending time and money on it. Yeah. You'd still look good. I used to call it, my, I had a boss that called it trombone oil. You could be the world's greatest manufacturer of trombone oil uh -huh. and feel pretty good about it and then discover the world only consumes about two quarts of it a year. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, why bother? I give you his management book. Go ahead. Uh, Bob, uh, one of the things that struck me about your last book was you spoke pretty frankly about how your predecessor, um, you know, tried to kneecap you when you were trying to get the job. I wondered if you wanted to, or be interested if you reflected on the bare knuckles part of business 
as you look back. By the way, I have a really nice relationship with Michael Eisner. Um, he taught me a tremendous amount. Um, as I think back on that, and maybe as I've matured, I realize I wouldn't have gotten the job without things that I learned from him and ultimately without his support. I also know, having gone through it, he was somewhat conflicted in handing the reins over to someone else, a company that he ran for 21 years. And so I'm much more empathetic today about it, and I'm thankful and gr I'm grateful to him and spend time with him, and we have a good relationship. And his um, knees are in just terms fine. Of, in terms of, you know, when, you, when you enter the corporate world, I, by the way, I've only been in the corporate world except for the last six months or nine months when I haven't. I was in the corporate world for, as I said, almost 50 years. Yeah, you put up with all sorts of different things, but it's, yeah, in many ways, corporations are microcosms of society. Not everything is easy. Not everybody gives you a break. You know, not everybody is rooting for you. Um, sometimes you've, you've, your luck runs out, whatever. I, as I look back, though, on my experience, I had incredible mentors that taught me a lot. I had a tremendous amount of luck and great opportunity. And so I, 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 I don't think of any of the bad stuff. It's all, I'm grateful for bygones. it Bygones. Bygones. Bygones be bygones. bygones. Over here, just a couple more questions. We only have just a short time, but- we'll By the way, it. I don't think Michael tried to kneecap me, but I, I, that's an, uh, I, I never used that expression. I think he tried to kneecap him, but I think he didn't get no, it. No, let's go on. All right, whatever. <laughs> hey, Bob, uh, Rich Greenfield. Thanks for doing this. You kind of suck. That's your T-shirt. Wow. Okay. You're not wearing a. That's the new Jeff Green suit. You're not wearing a suit. I was a suit for a while. Um. When when you oversaw Disney, you saw I think the cable network business or broadcasting cable network business was a tremendous growth driver. Basically, for every media company that exists today, it's been the sort of the, the driver of all of their profitability or the vast majority of their profitability. But Kara had Andy on earlier. She's going to have Tim Cook on later. There's no doubt that tech companies are coming for sports rights, coming for programming. What happens to this, to all of these companies? This whole business of cable networks and broadcast networks looks very, very, not just vulnerable, but starting to enter secular decline, but it's been the cash cow of this entire industry okay. that Question. you've grown right, up go ahead. in. That's why everybody's anxious. That's what I call the age of great anxiety, because the businesses that form the underpinning of our traditional media and entertainment world or space or industry are facing competition, unlike competition they ever faced before. And it's not going away. In fact, it's getting tougher. And I'm not, a, I'm not bullish about certain traditional elements of the media business. Uh, by the way, I'm bullish on Disney because Disney made the pivot to streaming and is leaning into it. They also are buffered by other businesses like their theme park business that is still extremely profitable and will continue to be and differentiated to the point that was made earlier. But if you're just in the channel, cable and satellite channel business, you're, it's a, you have a world to hurt. Okay. Um, very quickly, one, sorry, one more. I'm sorry, go ahead. Hey, Bob, Alex Heath from The Verge. You famously were going to buy Twitter at one point. Oh, I was going to ask that. And you pulled out, and I believe a quote you gave af afterwards was, the nastiness is extraordinary. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious quote. what that specific nastiness was that you found. Oh, well, you can answer that question. 
No, I would love to know what you think. What was the nastiness Here's you Here's what found? happened. We were looking, I, I, we were intent on going into the streaming business. We needed a technology solution. We have all this great IP. We weren't a technology company. How do we get that IP to consumers around the world and build them right and make sure the language is right and all the different formats around the world? And we were kicking tires left and right. We thought about developing it ourselves, five years, $500 million, too long, too much money. Uh, it wasn't the money, it was the time, because the world was changing fast. And at the same time, we heard that Twitter was contemplating a sale. We entered that process immediately, looking at Twitter as the solution. Global distribution platform is viewed as sort of a social network platform. Yeah, but you could make it. We were viewing it as something completely different. We could put news, sports, entertainment on it. We were going to do TikTok. Reach the world, exactly. Yeah. And it, frankly, it would have been a phenomenal solution distribution-wise. Then after we sold the whole concept to the Disney board and the Twitter board, and were really ready to execute a negotiation that was just about done, interestingly enough, I went home, contemplated it for a weekend, and thought, I'm not looking at this as carefully as I need to look at it. Yes, it's a great solution from a distribution perspective, but it would come with so many other challenges and complexities that as a manager of a great global brand, I was not prepared to take on. Major distraction and having to manage circumstances that weren't even close to anything that we had faced before. And this was pre-Trump too, right? And it was pre-Trump, yes. It was pre the 16 presidential election, correct. So nastiness, look, first of all, there's a question of how many, interestingly enough, because I watched, I read the news these days about it, we did look very carefully at all of the TikTok, I'm sorry, all of the Twitter um, users. I guess they're called users. Yes. Yeah. And we, at that point, estimated, with some Twitter's help, that a substantial portion, not a majority, were not real. How many? Did you? Have I don't remember. I don't remember the number. But we discounted the value. Ten percent. Heavily. Twenty. Twenty remember. Okay. Don't remember. Uh, that was one, but that was built into our economics. Actually, the deal that we had was pretty cheap. Um, that was built into our economics. Then you have to look, of course, at all the hate speech and uh, potential to do as much harm as good. We were in the business of manufacturing fun at Disney, of doing nothing but good, even though there are others today that criticize Disney for the opposite, which is wrong. Um, uh, and this was just something that we were not ready to take on, and I was not ready to take on as the CEO of a company. And I thought it would have been irresponsible. What do you think about Elon's chances? Don't, can't, can't handicap them. Don't know. Don't know. But I think he got close enough to it to really want it. Yeah. Now the question is, will his want prevail? I, don't, I just don't know. Well, he doesn't want it now. I don't know. He may be protesting too much. I don't know. Maybe he saw what I saw. Yeah. Maybe he woke up one day and said, I can't handle this. Yeah. Although he doesn't seem like that type. No. <laughs> I, mean that, that? <laughs> I mean that in a complimentary way. Okay, all right. Bob Iger, everybody. Thanks, Thank Sarah. you. We'll have more conversations from Code in the feed. Stay tuned. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here... 
chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 